and invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Let me follow up the announcement there that Aaron said. It sounded a little ominous to talk about our financial situation. Um, I made an announcement last week, and you should have gotten a letter in the mail um, this week as well, just um, detailing the nature of the, the breach of, of our cybersecurity over the course of the holidays where we were victims of a, of a cyber event. This wasn't the church accounts, this was our online giving vendor. And um, so we've temporarily shut down all of our online giving portals, texts, all those things. We've got to go old school. All you millennials notice that the boxes are that way, right? Um, with, with, with your paper checks. But um, what we wanted to do tonight is to take a time as a, a Four Oaks family in the, in the form of a meeting is just to kind of to update you on where we are with the investigative process. I think we, we've made some good progress by God's grace and have some good things to, to report. But we'd love for you to be here tonight at 5 p.m. just so that we can kind of walk you through um, the events of the last month or so, where we find ourselves now, what what course we're we're pursuing legally and otherwise, and um, and again, once once again, we we trust God and He's faithful, and I think you'll hear that tonight um, as you come. So about you, 5 p.m. right here, and and let's be honest, coming off the 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 high of the holidays, when you when we hear news like this, it's kind of like a little bit of a punch in the gut, right? It's 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 like. Uh, the, the football coach who's just won uh, the championship running across the field, he's elated only to be doused with ice-cold Gatorade, right? Which I always think is pretty fun depending on who won and which coach I don't like. You get what I'm saying. And in a lot of ways, that sort of, that sort of reality helps frame the passage this morning. Because in Matthew, as we've seen up to this point, there has been good tidings of great joy. Uh, the virgin has conceived. Christ Jesus is born. Wise men have come to worship. The world has been put on notice. But as we saw last week, the celebration is short-lived because some dark storm clouds, some foreboding news has just rolled in. King Herod has heard as well. And he has resolved that he is going to hunt down this newborn king and exterminate him. And the order is given. Go and slaughter every male age two and younger in the region of Bethlehem. And this is the subject of our passage this morning. Happy New Year, right? Now, this event does frame something for us, though, and it's really important for us to grab hold of this. And sometimes it, it can seem a little distant and abstract because of the culture of affluence and freedom that we, that we live in. But one of the things, for Oaks, that we have to acknowledge, and this is, can be a hard truth, is that in every generation, the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ have had to fight for their survival. In every generation, there will always be a clear and present danger to the gospel. Now, in saying that, I don't mean that Christ won't build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Of course he will. And, and I don't mean that the church and the kingdom of God will not ultimately reign victorious. 
it will as well. It's not what we're saying. What I do mean is that this victory, this fight, is exactly that. It is a fight. And in this life, it comes at a great cost, and it particularly makes a claim on the people of God. Genesis 3.15 alerts us to this, does it not? It says, absolutely, Jesus is going to come and crush the head of Satan and reign victorious. Absolutely. But let's not forget that Satan bruises his heel, that Satan causes trouble. Satan has been given a limited reign, albeit on a leash, for a season, for a time, until Jesus returns, and he can and does do great destruction. If we don't understand that, if we're not prepared for it, if we're not fortified against it, I maintain we will be ill-equipped in our spiritual lives to face the coming days. We will look to the wrong places for our hope. The events of this life will oftentimes lead us down a path of despair if we don't understand the nature, and I use this term um, intentionally, the nature of the war, the spiritual war that we are in, and we're going to see this up close and personal this morning in this passage. So if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. We're going to be reading from verses 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 23, here in Matthew 2. So folks, hear the, the reading of God's Word. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more." But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, help us to see not just the grim reality of sin and evil and injustice that, that permeates this passage. But Lord, more importantly, let us see you. Let us see your hand of sovereignty. Let us see your hand of hope, your hand of grace. And so, Father, we desperately need that in these, in these evil days that we live in. The people of God always must have an anchor. Lord, you were that anchor. Nothing in this world, no political process, no leader, no movement. Only you, Lord Jesus. Let us trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. 
Got to be honest, I don't remember studying this passage in Sunday school with the felt board figures. I don't remember this one, all right? But nonetheless, stealing from Tom Clancy here, this is titled Clear and Present Danger. And there's going to be three things that we look at from this passage. First of all, the design of evil. Secondly, the impact of sin. And finally, the hope of Christ, because there is indeed hope in this passage. Let's talk about the design of evil first. Look at verse 16. We clearly see Herod is the victim of the rope-a-dope, right? If you don't know what the rope-a-dope is, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, go Google it, right? You, 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 you think somebody's on top of it, but he's really not. Herod is on the hunt for the Messiah. He thinks he's got the wise men in his pocket, but the wise men run the trick play. They, they, you know, they have the fourth quarter comeback. They kick the last second field goal, all those sorts of things. They outfox the fox, and they went back east without telling Herod where Jesus was. And it says that Herod became furious. Now, that's a pretty strong word, but sometimes I think we make the word furious a little more quaint than it should be, right? You might be talking among your friends and, and, and say, you know, I, I missed curfew last night and mom and dad were furious, right? Oh, really? What did they do? They took away my driving privileges for a whole week. And it's like the travesty of it all. Well, this way undersells the intensity of what Herod felt and did. When it said he's furious, it means to be enraged or consumed with wrath. It, it, it's a rage that has a target. It's a directed rage that has a bullseye on it, and he issues the order, kill them all. Every boy in the region, we're going to absolutely, two years and younger, we're going to make sure that we get Jesus, that he's caught up in this net of ruthlessness. But understand, this is not a blind fury. A lot of times we, we, we picture Herod kind of overturning the tables and, and acting irrationally. But in actuality, Matthew tells us that this was a cold, calculated action. Okay, look at that. Look at the phrase. It says, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, that word ascertain, it means to be exact. It means to come to a reasoned, focused course of action with the greatest of expediencies. I imagine Nicolas Cage in the, in the National Treasure having all his maps and, and everything out laid out on the table, sort of figuring out the next clue, which somehow he does in two hours on every movie. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, Herod, he has his charts too. And he has his advisors. Um, he, he, he ascertains, he pinpoints when the wise men began their journey. The timing of this cosmic event, which I believe was a comet, and I will not be dissuaded from this, and you can take me to lunch and I'll tell you why. He, 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 he calculated their direction of travel, and he, he zeroed in, that's the idea, with cold, cunning calculation. We're, we're reminded, aren't we, on a, on a different level, though, of of the Nazis and their final solution with the Holocaust, that it was nothing if it was not expedient. 
It was nothing if it was not meticulously planned. What, what, what does this tell us as we're wading into this passage? It tells us, church, please hear this. While evil might appear to be random, while, endem, while, while evil might, have, might appear to sort of pop up like popcorn on the evening news, and it's like, what, what dreaded news shall we hear this evening, right? It can appear to be sort of random and spontaneous, but at its root, evil is systemic, it is organized, it is strategic, and the reason it is all of those things is because Satan is behind it all. Satan is the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. Evil came into the universe through the result of Lucifer and his fellow fallen angels, demons, rising up in rebellion against God. It's another sermon. And introducing evil sin into the created universe. And make no mistake... Satan's primary objective, his primary MO in the time he has, is to destroy God and his works and his people. Guys, it's for no reason that Peter reminds us of something in 1 Peter 5 8. He says, Be sober minded, be watchful. What a call. Why? Your adversary, your enemy, church, you have an enemy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Did you hear in the news story this past week in Dallas, a snow leopard escaped? Did you hear about this? And they kept saying, but he's no threat to humans. And it's like, right, like leopards are no threats to humans. He's no threat, but don't get anywhere near him, right? Well, Satan is aggressively prowling around. He's not passive. He's not over in the corner. He's seeking actively a way to perpetrate injustice, evil sin against God's purposes and the people of God. And here's the deal That's, that stands behind this. If Jesus, God incarnate, were to be born, to grow up and die a death on the cross for sins, this would have meant the end of Satan, and he knew it. At all costs, Satan is like, I'm not even going to mess around. I'm not going to wait till his temptation, although I'm going to tempt him. I'm not going to wait till the garden, although I'm going to tempt him there. Let's just get this over with as quickly as possible. We have to exterminate Jesus. Now, the Apostle John, and, and Pastor Scott mentioned this passage last week, I believe is reflecting on this event when he writes Revelation 12. And listen to the way John, the Apostle John, describes this event. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, listen, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God. Now, this is, this is fascinating. Herod is the one, according to Matthew, who orders and carries out one of the most infamous passages of, in all of Scripture, the massacre of the innocents. Yet, John tells us that standing behind Herod, between, behind his evil actions, is the design of Satan. Herod, in a sense, is Satan's proxy. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean that Herod is not responsible for his sin. He is. It doesn't mean that Herod is not responsible for his evil. He is. It just means that oftentimes Satan uses human proxies and emissaries to accomplish his goals. And that's true whether it's a dictator or Pornhub or Planned Parenthood or racism or gun violence. And the list can go on and on and on. So we, we, we have to understand there is a design, there is, there, there, there is a rhyme and a reason as horrific as that might sound to the evil that we see on earth. But it doesn't mean that Herod was not responsible for his sin. Because if you have to think about this on a human level, why did Herod want to kill Jesus? Why did he want to kill Jesus? What, what threat could a little baby make to him? Now, we might be tempted to think that if only Herod really knew who Jesus was, he never would have done this. And sometimes that's our heart and attitude. We think that what people need when it comes to Christianity and Christ is just more information. If I can share this little tidbit, or I, I read about this little apologetic ditty with that Tim Keller articulated better than anybody can articulate, let's, let's be honest, right? If I just could say the right thing, if they had the right information, if Herod really knew who Jesus was, of course he wouldn't have done that. Because I think it's actually the opposite. See, I think Herod knew exactly who Jesus was. Think about what we've learned in Matthew so far. Who did Herod gather around him? The wise men who were pointing out the Old Testament scriptures that they were following. Who else did he gather around him? The religious leaders of Israel. They told him plainly, this is where the Messiah is going to come from. This is how it's going to happen. He had the Jewish scriptures. He had this celestial event. Herod killed Jesus because Herod understood very well who Jesus was. Jesus was a threat to his power, his authority, his autonomy. Herod understood quite well there can only be one king. And that's why he wanted to kill him. Guys, some people, sometimes people reject Jesus and the gospel because they, they don't understand, in a sense. But sometimes they reject Jesus and the gospel because they understand all too well. You see, Herod's rebellion, his violence, 
is a picture of every human heart when it is confronted with the claims of Christ. Guys, we all want a king to make things right. We would just prefer that king be us. This series we're calling, that we're, as we're preaching through Matthew, King and Kingdom, because part of Matthew's purpose in writing this gospel is to press upon us, not as do we recognize Jesus as king in sort of an abstract confessional sense, but will you recognize his lordship and kingship in your life? Will you yield to that lordship and his kingship? And, and, and maybe it's not through the massacre of the innocents, but we have a thousand other ways, right? A thousand other ways to, to, to circumvent the lordship of Christ. What Herod does he just gives it front and center. It's not ambiguous. It's not murky. It's not ambivalent. It's right there for us to see. And when people, the world, culture, us, person, when we don't acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, as we see in this passage, the impact of sin can be quite egregious. And that brings us to our second point, the impact of sin. Look back in verse 16. It says, you know, you're just waiting at some point for, for someone to write in and save the day, right? <clears throat> verse 16, Herod sent and killed. Very simple. Every male to and under in that region. And to underscore the, 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 the scope of this tragedy, the scope of this atrocity, Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. Now, let me, let me read that for us, and you can look in your, in your Bibles. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, now why did, did Matthew pick this passage? And I, I want to I focus on two words in particular, the two R's, Ramah and Rachel. Now remember, in their original context, when Jeremiah was writing this, he was in exile, a prisoner in exile in Babylon with the rest of the Israelites. He was writing to them, and when he was writing, the Israelites would have understood very well all about Ramah. What was Ramah? Ramah was a little town about four miles north of Jerusalem. And it was on the road, the king's way, on the way to Babylon. And so what would happen is that as Babylon conquered, remember, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, and took everyone captive and sent them back to Babylon. Now that sounds, again, because we've heard this so many times, kind of quaint, but, but let's really think about what that was like. Whole families, clans are herded to Ramah. Ramah was the deportation center. And it was at Ramah that men and women, boys and girls, children and parents were separated, never to see one another again. This group went this way to some untold horror of slavery. Some went this way to some untold horror of, of labor camp. 
And you can imagine what a scene of wailing this must have been in Ramah. This was tear apart the heart of any parent. I think about that scene in Schindler's List where the Nazis rounded up all the children in the concentration camp. They thought they were going on a field trip, on an excursion. They put them in the back of that, those trucks, and, they, and, the, and the mothers, do you remember this? They, if you've see, seen the movie, they, they, they woke up that morning, realized their kids were gone, and saw them being carted out of the gate, and they all began running to the barbed wire, weeping and wailing because they knew they would never see their children Again, that's what happened in Ramah. And Matthew's telling us that's what's happened in Bethlehem. He uses the word Rachel. I think that's significant as well. Because remember, who was the father of Israel? Israel, Jacob. That was the father of Israel. And Rachel was his wife. And it seems that Jeremiah is using this picture of Rachel as sort of this metaphor for all the mothers of Israel. And isn't it interesting, you can go there today and still see it, whose grave is it that is in Bethlehem and was in Bethlehem even at this time? Rachel's. See, as Matthew's readers would have read this, they would have felt this personally historically, geographically, religiously. And Matthew wants us to feel that. Singer, songwriter, theologian Michael Card wrote a song about Matthew too. How could you write a song about Matthew too? He did, and it, he did, and it's profound. And he clearly saw in it the parallels between that culture of death and our own. And listen to what he says, and I'm going to quote. Now, every age has heard it, this voice that speaks from hell. Sacrifice your children, and for you it will be well. The subtle serpent's lying, his dark and ruthless rage. Behold, it is to be revealed to be the spirit of the age. A voice is heard of weeping and of wailing. History speaks of it on every page. Of innocent and helpless little babies. Offerings to the spirit of the age. And guys, we have to be reminded as much as we may not want to think about it. That in every age, in every culture, the spirit of the age behind which is the design of Satan, comes up against the gospel. It comes up against the church. It, it comes up upon the image of God. And invariably, who is it that suffers the most from the designs of Satan? It's children. It's children who are particularly vulnerable. It is children who are sacrificed on the altar of power and convenience and ease and comfort and don't buy the myth that we are just progressively getting better as a culture in terms of our intellect and our research. We're still the same old people we used to be. See, this is the time of year when we remember and celebrate sanctity of human life. And that takes on a particular 
meaning and significance this year, does it not, with the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and sending that back to the states. Yet, we know that just passing a law or declaring an action unjust, let this be a lesson to all the social media warriors, just because we say something doesn't automatically eradicate and make it all go away, the spirit of the age. It takes a profound change of heart. Unless you need to be reminded of this, just this past week, 210 members of the U.S. House of Representatives, almost half, voted against the Born Alive Bill. What is the Born Alive Bill? It's a bill that requires doctors to provide medical care to save a baby's life if it somehow survives an abortion. Can you think about that for a second? Think about a baby well enough to to be able to live outside the womb, that baby being subjected to killing. But if somehow it survives, this bill would require doctors to provide care, and 210 legislators said, no, let it die. Now, it's all behind the curtain of this right and that freedom, but as we're reminded, it's simply this, this generation's version of the spirit of the age. Guys, evil is systemic. It is real. Because Francis Schaeffer, who was the great Christian leader, apologist, theologian, viewed by many as the father of the pro-life movement, 50 years ago warned what was at stake in the debate over whether to legalize abortion. And, and think about how, how prophetic he was. Listen to this, this quote. Schaeffer challenged the heinous practice of abortion, which he regarded as an assault on the Imago Dei, the image of God. Without the Imago Dei, he argued, human life is cheapened and lacks value, leading to an increase not only in abortion, and these are things that he spoke about 50 years ago, but also infanticide, euthanasia, child abuse, pornography, torture, crime, and violence. Schaefer understood that abortion did not operate in isolation. It opened the doorway to other evils. And can we not see this today? Other evils also include things like the transgender movement, which is absolutely a clear and present danger to the children of our country. The fiction that sexual identity and preference is a matter of choice, that we are free to construct our own identities. Guys, this is particularly devastating for adolescent girls. This is particularly devastated as children. And I'm going to use these words because I think they are very true. As they are groomed, as they are exploited, as they are offered up in family-friendly drag shows for the insatiable sexual appetites of those watching. Guys, the spirit of the age is powerful. And we can deny it we can ignore it. We can turn our back on it. But I think Matthew wants us to take a good, long, hard look at it. See, his readers would have, and they would have understood this very well. And if we spend any time on it, 
we understand that it will. And, and let's be honest, it's enough to make you despair. It's enough to make you despair if there wasn't a gospel. But there is, even in this text. So let's look at it, the hope of Christ. If the transition between verses 18 and 19 seems stark, it is. I want you just to notice this. The women of Bethlehem are weeping for their children. The holy family is in exile. Terror reigns. Lives are shattered. And then out of the blue, and it's just like Matthew just kind of like drops it like a piece of garbage on the ground. What does he say? But when Herod died. Just, well, when he died. Kind of like Thanos and the snap of the fingers, right? The threat is gone. Just like that. This man who was so consumed to holding on to power, just one morning, it's all gone. I remember when we took the Four Oaks Israel trip, we went to Masat, to a place called Masada. It's a mountain fortress outside of Jerusalem. It was constructed and built by whom? Herod. And the idea is that Herod, Herod was so paranoid and so intent on holding on to his power he wanted to make sure that if there was an uprising, a rebellion, if somebody came after him, he would have a place to escape to if there ever was a coup attempt. Herod never got that chance. See, it wasn't external violent forces that took him down. It was internal violent forces. His body failed him. Historians think he had chronic kidney disease. They believe he had gangrene of the abdominal area, and any kind of gangrene sounds awful, but in the abdominal area sounds triply awful, right? History tells us that he suffered greatly before dying. And all of that history, all of that greatness, all of that achievement gone in just two little words, three little words, but Herod died. And you can visit Masada, and it's a great place. But it's just a decaying monument and museum. Just like so many that have come before and so many that will come after. That we can be God, that we can construct our realities, that, that we can be king. But Psalm 2 reminds us of something. Some of us need to read Psalm 2 every morning as we get up to face the world. Here's what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cut away their cords from us. Now, I love this next part. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Kings come and go. God's purposes endure forever. The world is literally arraying itself in this text against the God of the universe. And the point is, God can even use a baby to outlast them all. Herod is dead. Jesus is living. That's Matthew's point. 
Let me just ask you, church, what's the thing in your life, sort of the Herod-esque thing that just lurks over you? Maybe it's suffering or hardship or somebody else's sin. Something in your life that you believe is working cross-purposes to God's purposes. This thing, Pastor Paul, if, it was, if, God, if God would just rid me of this difficulty, this, this relationship, this hardship, it would allow God's purposes to flow more freely into my life. How many of us say that? I say that. Whatever that thing is, I don't ask if there is a thing, because there is for all of us, what is it? We learn here that even that thing is being used by God is being orchestrated by God, is being ruled and governed, and God is sovereign over that. Because this is interesting. Matthew goes on to tell us that Herod was succeeded by his son to the throne, Archelaus, who was equally brutal, and this required another rerouting of the holy family. Okay. Now, on one hand, that can feel discouraging, right? Herod dies, another king in his place. Cut off one head of the hydra, the other head is still there. It's like, it's like the gremlins, right? Throw water on one, it multiplies into two. It can feel a little like that. Like, oh my gosh, evil doesn't, doesn't stop. And, and that, that's true. In this life, evil doesn't stop. But Matthew's point here is that God is greater than that. He is in absolute control of human history. He's raising up and taking down leaders. He's, he's putting the infant Jesus into Egypt. He's taking the infant Jesus out of Egypt. He's taking the infant Jesus from Jerusalem, taking him to Nazareth. Do, do, do you see Matthew's point here? Matthew says, of, of course, there's always going to be evil. There's always going to be events, systemic and otherwise, that threaten the people of God. But what Matthew shows us here, as he shows us all through his gospel, is that Jesus is king. And no one takes his life apart from the sovereign rule and reign of God. Now, it tells us, and we're going to close with this, that Ultimately, God led the, the Holy Family back to Nazareth. And it says here, it was to fulfill the prophecy, he will be a Nazarene. Now, the problem and the challenge biblical scholars wrestle with, there is no specific biblical Old Testament prophecy that says he will be a Nazarene. Most likely, Matthew's, and it seems to be what Matthew's drawing on here, Matthew is probably, and I say probably, Drawing from Isaiah 11. Remember that it's prophesied in Isaiah 11 that God is going to raise up a branch from the stump of Jesse, of David. In other words, the Davidic line has been cut off. It's just a stump. But God's going to graft in a branch and who's going to be the, the remnant of the, of the root of David. Now, the, the Hebrew word for branch and Nazarene are almost identical, Nazir. And so most people think that what's, what Matthew's doing here is, is utilizing this play on words. 
Okay? But what's the point? The point is this. Despite all other appearances, guys, Jesus is not in Nazareth because of Satan. Jesus is not in Nazareth because of Herod. Jesus is in Nazareth because of God. That all of this, somehow, all of this evil, all of this systemic injustice is somehow sovereignly being superintended by God to get Jesus from here to there for the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And if God can orchestrate the affairs of humanity around his son seamlessly, what's Matthew inviting us to? Of course he's big enough to handle your life. Of course he's big enough to handle my life. Of course, God is working all things for the good for those who love him, who call, are called by him according to his purpose. It came, let's, let's understand this. Again, the moral of the story is not just God's going to take everything and, and ignore the evil around, that, that's not the point. Because this salvation, does it not? It comes at great cost to Christ. You see, God saved his son right then so that he wouldn't save him later. See, Jesus had to live. He had to grow up. He had to perfectly fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. He had to minister and teach and serve and establish his authority But then that same Jesus, that guiltless Jesus, had to go to a cross and had to die a sacrificial death in our place. And it might have appeared that the forces of Satan and injustice had won. But as we know, God was sovereign over it all. Churches, as as we prepare our hearts this morning to come to the table, I want us to to fast forward in Jeremiah for a second. Jeremiah begins with this most terrible tragedy of the sons of Rachel and Ramah weeping for their children who were no more. I want you to listen, though, to how Jeremiah 31 ends. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. When we come to the table, there's many things that, that, that that are wrapped up in and what we do here. But one that I want you to really think on this morning and meditate on, Four Oaks, 
is this idea that when we come to the table, we are making a declaration of hope. We are saying we believe that although evil is real and sin is real, and that Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil, have, have made their mark in this life and on our lives, they do not have the final say. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to one day make things right. Jesus is going to give voice to those who were crying, who were weeping. He's going to give voice to your grief, to your sorrows, to your suffering. It comes at great cost in this life, I know. But when we come to the table, we're saying our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I'm going to invite you just to, to bow your heads and just to spend a moment or two thinking about this text, preparing your heart, and I'll invite our leaders who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to join me up front.